Let's go um, check in with Chief Bob Chamberlain, former Vice President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, on today's announcement. Hello, Chief Bob Chamberlain. Uh, good afternoon, Jimmy. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really happy to. Yeah, and how is the weather treating you where you are? Well, I'm in North Vancouver and it's uh, warm. <laughs> yeah, you know, warm across Vancouver, warm across most part of uh, the province. So let's get right into the story, the big news of the day, which is the appointment of um, Mary Simon as the first Indigenous um, Governor General of British Columbia. Uh, but just before I take your reactions, let's quickly take this clip from her. This is a moment uh, that I hope all Canadians feel part of because my appointment reflects our collective progress towards building a more inclusive, just and equitable society. So what do you say about that, Chief Chamberlain? Well, I'm very happy for uh, Mary Simon. Uh, Her reputation, her accomplishments speak for themselves. Uh, She's a very accomplished First Nations woman uh, that is going to provide a high level of dignity and respect to this position, uh, given who she's replacing. And, of course, in the news, we've all been on top of what's been happening, the discoveries of the unmarked grave sites across various provinces in the country, and the constant conversation, the ongoing discussion about reconciliation. You know, my question to you is, what ways will this... contribute to reconciliation between Indigenous people and Canada? How, how will this kind of repair or help us, you know, on our way to reconciliation? Well, as happy as I am for Mary Simon and her appointment, I can't help but think this is another uh, chapter of Prime Minister Trudeau's delay, deny and distract approach to reconciliation with First Nations. There are plenty of reports around the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People from the 90s, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Report, and yet we have not seen anything that represents any substantive or fundamental change that all of these reports call for. And I'm hoping that this isn't just another uh, measure of distraction uh, so that he can head into an election and make more uh, empty and hollow promises to First Nations. So when you talk about maybe this is another one of those promises because there is talks about an upcoming election and at a time like this, maybe this is just one of the things to do to appease and to get going. So you were saying this might be that, but my question to you is, as Chief Bob Chamberlain, what would you call, what, what's, your own, what, what's your own definition of true reconciliation and the way forward? Well, to start with, I think the, the reports that I've referenced need to be implemented, period. Uh, Canadians have, uh, through the government expenditures, paid a lot of money to do the examination, and yet nothing has changed. And this should be unacceptable to everybody. Um, as a starting point, I think that the federal government needs to fully implement Supreme Court of Canada rulings that empower First Nations. Because what we see is a continual denial or a minimal, at best, approach to implementing what is the highest court in this country's law and direction to government. 
And this should be absolutely unacceptable to all voters in this country. Okay, so before I let you go, Chief Chamberlain, I'll ask you this final question, right? Um, In the last couple of weeks, we've seen um, churches being burned down across the country. Here in British Columbia, we've seen a number of churches right next in Alberta, Nova Scotia, and on and on. Now, this is a platform. I'm giving you this platform. What would you say about what's going on right now? And what would you say about the church burnings? Well, I don't uh, like to see buildings of faith being attacked in any way, shape, or form, whether it's a mosque or a gurdwara or a church. Uh, These are representations of people's faith. The anger that I interpret from these actions, whether they're First Nations people or not, because I've not heard that anyone has been charged with these, these arsons. So I think it's presumptuous to say that it is First Nations. But I believe that the frustrations that are out now are from a generation that is far more educated, far more in tune with the machine of government and the constant and consistent denial of Aboriginal people's human rights in this country. And when you consider the the recent uh, UN Declaration of Rights on Indigenous People legislation from this federal government, it talks about bringing laws Uh, into line with human rights and justice and equality. Well, that in itself is an admission that existing laws and government structures and processes are not in line with those things. So, okay, Uh, at this point, I wish we had more time to really delve into the UN declaration and some other stuff. But um, I I just want to say a big thank you to you, Chief Bob Chamberlain, former Vice President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs today for weighing in on the big announcement this morning of the appointment of Mary Simon as um, the incoming Governor General of Canada. Thanks for joining us, um, Chief Chamberlain. Thank you, Jimmy. You welcome back to the show. My name is Jumi Ogunshola, filling in for Jill this um, hot Tuesday afternoon right here. And um, in case you've just joined us, well, we have been taking reactions to the news of the appointment of the new Governor General, the first Indigenous um, Governor General in Canada. And um, still coming up, we'll be taking more reactions. Um, we're hoping that the honour, the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, will be joining us later on on the show. We'll also be examining the new hydrogen strategy that was unveiled today right here um, in British Columbia. We'll be talking about the wildfires and some ways to stay safe. And of course, we will be discussing that new variant that the World Health Organization is warning about. But in the meantime, we're speaking with Iglet. We're speaking with Iglika Ivanova. Um, Iglika Ivanova is um, their senior economist and author of a new study out from the CCPABC talking about inequalities um, of how this pandemic, right, has exposed inequalities across the country in various groups being hit more than the other ones um, in the, with the economy, right? So Iglika, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so the new study, right, I was going through it earlier today, and it's no longer news. We all know how hard we were hit with the pandemic, people losing jobs and some businesses going under and not resurfacing again and people having to rely on different things. But what this study shows is that some groups, right, were hit more than others. 
That's correct. That's correct. What this study shows is that although right now our economic recovery here in D.C. is slightly ahead of most other provinces, and we're seeing some relatively strong job creation and some very good top-line numbers, what my report is showing that just below the surface of those top-line numbers, there is enormous amounts of inequality and injustice. That the job market recovery has not been experienced in the same way by all workers. And we're still seeing low-wage, racialized, indigenous, immigrant workers, women, young workers, um, much, much slower to recover. They're still well below their pre-pandemic employment levels. And, and I'm concerned that in our rush to get back to normal and have a normal summer, we're going to leave them behind. Okay, so when we talk about these various groups like immigrants, um, uh, immigrant workers, women, and are we also looking at, you know, like minority communities as well in this? Yeah, that's correct. We're looking at, at workers of color. And there are some of the hardest hit, actually, in the recession. They still are experiencing much higher unemployment rates than white workers and much higher levels of financial insecurity. We are finding that um, those minority households or or racialized households, uh, almost one in three of those households are finding it very difficult or difficult to pay their basic bills even though we have a strong recovery in BC, and even though we have all these new federal supports for the unemployed. And those rates of financial insecurities are double what white households experience. Okay, so um, I don't want us to assume that everyone listening to the show right now um, understands or knows where this, um, in terms of... um, jobs or that most of the immigrants or women or, you know, um, other groups tend to do. Let's talk about some of those industries or sectors. What what industries, what jobs are immigrants um, most likely to do, you know, in British Columbia, right? That's what I'm saying. I don't want us to assume that people know that, oh, you'll find if you'll most likely find immigrants in this kind of jobs, maybe low paying jobs, or let's talk more about that. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think people don't necessarily realize just how um, segregated and, you know, color-coded, if you like, our, our job market still is. We're seeing a lot more uh, racialized and immigrant workers in uh, the service sectors that were hardest hit by the pandemic, sectors such as accommodation and food services, but also in the, the sectors that um, were found to be essential and yet undervalued during the pandemic. So we're talking about food processing plants. We're talking about healthcare services, cleaning, um, you know, all, all of those care, both caregiving and service sector jobs are, are tend to be lower wage and tend to have much more um, racialized and indigenous workers working in them. So with your examination and, you know, a, a deeper look at this findings that we we see with the inequalities that exist in terms of even when the recovery is coming up, some of those jobs may not be readily available. And what do you think, how do we address some of these concerns? 
I think the good news is that now that we are, um, you know, seeing a reopening and kind of a stronger economic recovery, now is the perfect time to be addressing these concerns. Uh, there is uh, basically three things that the governments and employers together need to do. You know, one is we need to make sure that the jobs we create provide um, family supporting income and um, actually good job quality and and access to benefits so that everyone can um, have a good life while working. So that's number one. Uh, We also need to invest in the care economy where a lot of those workers that were hardest hit are working. So we've seen some some very positive news on investment in childcare. We also need to invest more in senior care and in training and education so that workers who need to retrain and get new skills can do that. And the third thing we need to do is we need to actually help the people who aren't able to find work or aren't able to support themselves to work by fixing our broken system of disability support and income support in this province. So um, earlier, I think it was late last year, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves me right, right? We, this particular pandemic was referred to partly as the she session, right? You know, where we had lots of women impacted by the, the, the global economic downturn, people lost their jobs or people having to, because, you know, as a woman, right, you talk, you're thinking about your children, you're thinking about the best care for them, you're trying to, and it also speaks to why there is a bit of wage gap between, you know, maybe not a bit, wage gap between um, the genders, female and male. And one of the things that you've said that three things that we could do includes investing in care economy, which I'm guessing includes child care and seniors care. But for so long, the government has been talking about, you know, investing in child care. And, you know, I can remember way back, even my son is eight years old right now. And we've been talking about child care and making it more affordable to people, to women, so that we all know that when women take part in the economy, right, it makes it grow bigger. And, you know, so, and we've heard a lot about this. What you have to say about child care in particular what's the real way to go about child care i think you make a great point we have uh, been behind on these files for a long time we've known we've had a problem and we have been very slow in canada to address it bc has taken some steps but much more needs to be done and i think what we need to do is really um double down on on childcare and invest big and make sure that we're not just lowering fees and creating a better affordability in the spaces that exist, but actually creating a lot more new spaces because there's just not enough childcare spaces for uh, for all the families who need childcare. And that's an enormous problem, uh, stopping mothers with younger children from working. And as you mentioned, it is driving the gender pay gap to a large extent. My name is Jimmy Ogunshala filling in for Jill. And um, just before we get back to Iglika, I'm still talking about the inequalities um, caused by the pandemic. 
The BC government today unveiled a hydrogen economy strategy. We'll be talking about that um, on the other side at about one with um, one of our very own, Matthew Klippenstein. And um, so back to you, Iglika. Thanks for hanging in there. Let's talk about your, your study found out that, you know, long term unemployment in BC is about 33 percent. And um, in Canada, right, um, that's jobs over six months when we're looking like, you know, jobs over six month time period. And in Canada, we're looking at something around um, an average of 28 percent. Yeah, so what what I was looking at is kind of digging deeper below the top line numbers of job creation and, and reducing unemployment overall to show where the cracks in the foundation lie and where the issues that we really need to address if we want to build back better, if you want to get back to an inclusive economy and not just the old status quo that uh, we knew and we found out during the pandemic that it doesn't work for too many people. So long-term unemployment is one of those issues. Long-term unemployment um, measures um, the number of people or the percentage of unemployed who are Um, unemployed for longer than six months. And so one of the concerning things about this pandemic is that it has caused our long-term unemployment, both in BC and in Canada, to increase much more than other previous recessions have. So what we're seeing is that people who lost their jobs in the early lockdown last spring, many of them still haven't found work. And that's partly because some of the sectors that have been worst impacted by the lockdowns are still um, not yet recovered. We're, you know, looking at tourism sectors, accommodation, food services, um, culture and recreation, personal services. Those sectors are still operating well below capacity and the workers in those sectors remain unemployed. And, and that's a big concern because a lot of our unemployment benefits you know, have maximum duration, you know, and, and people will uh, kind of finish their benefits or they won't be eligible for any more benefits before we've seen a full recovery of, of those sectors. And I think that's very dangerous because uh, at the top, at the surface, when we look at economic activity, it looks like things are okay and then maybe we don't need as much government support. But in reality, uh, there's a lot of people who need targeted support. And the long-term unemployed are, are one of those important groups that need targeted support. So earlier this week, um, I saw this, um, um, I think it was um, a poll that was done about Canada and consumers being positive about the road to recovery, the economic recovery, businesses and things like that. So we are saying that the industries that most of those people that you were talking about belong to might not necessarily be amongst those that are seen to be, you know, rapidly recovering from the pandemic. That's right. I think what the what my research shows and what the story of the pandemic really is is a story of stark inequality. You know, early on in the pandemic, we we heard a lot of talk about how we're all in this together. And yes, everyone experienced um, unprecedented disruptions. But when we look at what actually happened, um, we're not all in this together. A lot of people 
especially those who are higher paid workers who already have comfortable incomes and job security, they were able to transition to working from home and many have even accumulated savings as they spend less on commuting and spend less on entertainment and going out during the pandemic. And so now they're having, you know, uh, huge savings. And if they owned property or if they had financial investments, they've seen even even bigger jumps in their wealth. So, uh, so we have that group and we also have the workers who haven't yet recovered, who are experiencing financial insecurities, who, who have really seen a job loss and, and haven't been able to find comparable jobs yet. And I think it's these, these two you know, um, like very different experiences that we need to consider when we, every time we hear those top line numbers of the economy is recovering or people are feeling optimistic, it's like who is feeling optimistic? It's not everyone that is experiencing this recovery in the same way. And I think it's, it's very, very important to keep that in mind. You know, during the pandemic, we've learned so much about what government can do and what we're all doing wrong, you know, like how, how our economy fails so many people. And I think we really need to, um, to integrate those lessons now and apply them now as we reopen and rehire. So um, talking about still on this economy thing, you were you know, in your report, you highlighted benefits, you know, looking at how to create benefit or better benefits for people who are working in that area. Let's talk about some of those benefits um, or let's call it better or good working conditions that you are suggesting. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things we learned during the pandemic is that a lot of the work that actually keeps the economy going, you know, a lot of that service uh, type work, deliveries, um, grocery stores, um, food processing, and and also the work that is involved in caregiving. It makes it possible for the rest of the economy to function. And yet these people um, are usually underpaid. They don't have access to benefits. They don't have paid sick leave or, you know, very good working conditions or, or job security at all even though they're essential for, for the functioning of our economy. And I think we need to think about why that is and what we can do to fix that. And I think there's a lot we can do in terms of um, strengthening um, workplace rights and strengthening the rights to think like things like paid, paid sick leave, for example, so that when workers are sick, they don't have to um, suffer loss of income just because they are too sick to work. Um, yeah, so I, I think we really need to be thinking about those things as we reopen the economy. Iglika Ivanover, CCPAB, Senior Economist and author of the new study. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for covering this important topic. Jimmy Ogunshala in the chair this afternoon. All right, wherever you may be listening to us from, it's pretty hot out there. So take it easy, put on your sunscreen, protect yourself. We'll be talking about the wildfires and also how to stay safe um, when the smoke start bellowing in in terms of air pollution. That's coming up on the show. And also we will be telling you more about the new variant that's just been you know, announced, discovered. The COVID variant is called Lambda. And if we shall be concerned as British Columbians, as Canadians about this variant, that's coming up. But in the meantime, earlier today, the British Columbia government 
unveiled its plan to scale up, okay, on on its hydrogen plan in this province, right? So, and we will be speaking with Matthew Klippenstein, and Matthew Klippenstein is um, the regional manager for Western Canada for the Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How is the weather treating you today? Um, it's doing all right. Uh, I've got a fan going in the background. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come through on the mic. <laughs> okay, good. I, I hope I hope it doesn't, right? Because that's been the story of um, our lives in BC, talking about fans and AC. And you, you sent this email talking about, you know, something we discussed on the Charles Adler show. Yes, I'm also the producer for Charles Adler on the Global mm-hmm. News Radio, uh, yeah. um, where we're looking at ACs being mandated, becoming part of our buildings in British Columbia because... The climate is changing, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, you have to you have to uh, go to where the puck is going to be, you know, not where it is, and uh, it's going to be hotter, so we, we should have um, uh, air conditioning available to more people as, as, as fast as we can. One thing that I experienced during this um, heat wave, you know, was the fact that I could not find a fan in any of the stores. I went mm. to all the big stores that were out, and, you know, I was just like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, so uh, that's that's kind of what happens, you know, when it uh, if it snows a lot, you, you run into snow shovels in the stores. So um, it's kind of a trade-off between efficiency. You know, stores don't want to carry more goods than they need to because that's inventory. It doesn't actually get sold uh, versus resiliency. You always want to have some sort of a backup plan or some sort of excess capacity so you can handle these spikes. And, uh, you know, not just uh, with fans or snow shovels, but uh, in, in all manners of life. Uh, you, uh, you ideally have a bit of a buffer so that uh, you can get through these little upsets that come now and then. Okay, so let's get into the topic for today, which is um, sure. BC's um, hydrogen plan, right? It's mm-hmm. no longer news. The world is shifting. We're transitioning away from fossil fuels and you know we're all looking towards renewable energy you know the hydrogen what does this plan that was unveiled a couple of hours ago what does this entail what does this contain sure and so i guess i'll start off um with uh mentioning so bc and canada have these uh, climate targets that we're trying to meet to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to reduce heat waves and other human suffering that these can cause and um the, uh, you can do a lot with uh, you know, building renewable energy and using batteries for cars, for example, but you can't get to 100% emissions reduction, which creates a space here for hydrogen uh, and fuel cells, for which British Columbia is a worldwide leader, uh, to be able to step up and fill the gaps that there are, um, that uh, renewables and batteries aren't as best able to, to be suitable for. Uh, maybe one example might be... Um, that, you know, a solar panel will give you the same amount of energy on a 20-degree C day or a 40-degree C day. And at 20 degrees, maybe you don't want to run that AC, but at 40, you absolutely definitely do. So you do need to have the ability to dispatch, to, to release more electricity as you need it during heat waves. And we're very lucky with hydroelectric in the province, but even there, our, uh, we set some records for summertime. And so one of the things that hydrogen can do, it's a way of, of storing energy uh, and that you can release it, you can use it to generate electricity, to, to push uh, vehicles forward, uh, ships, airplanes, uh, heavier trucks, locomotives. So it's a, it's a complementary, it's like a sidekick, I guess you'd say, 
to uh, batteries and renewables in that, you know, we don't, we've, we've promised a little bit too much before in the past, but we're definitely part of the, uh, of the solutions uh, equation there. So, Matthew, let's be very realistic with this space, right? And let's bring it to the, the regular Joe, the average sure, Canadian. Yeah. When we talk about climate change, we do know mm-hmm. that, yes, we have people who are maybe um, climate change deniers who don't very much. And look, people have a right to their opinion to believe in mm-hmm. whatever they choose to believe in for whatever reason. But when sure. we talk about the climate targets, which, you know, we have the Paris Agreement, we have all of the reaching zero mm-hmm. emission and things like that. You said it's not possible for us to, like, be 100%. I want us to be 100% because I want the planet to be a better place for my children, oh, for my children's absolutely. children, right? So it, when we talk about this not being totally attainable. Oh, what are okay. some of those things in our way that, you know, like obstacles, the hoops that we have to jump through? Sure, yeah, sorry. Uh, I want to emphasize that it's uh, uh, hydrogen is a very much a complementary uh, climate solution alongside renewables and batteries. And with, with everything together, you, get, uh, you can get to the uh, 100% uh, net zero uh, emissions reductions. And so as an example, um, the, uh, some, a study that was commissioned for the, uh, for the BC government estimated that about 11% of the, uh, the emissions that we had in 2018, that's the year we're comparing to, could be uh, uh, eliminated, avoided with the use of hydrogen instead of other fossil fuels, instead of fossil fuels rather. Uh, and so uh, in, in a way, it kind of completes the circle where um, you know, renewables are wonderful, batteries for cars, wonderful, batteries for certain buses and trucks, fantastic as well. Uh, but uh, you, uh, on their own, they don't quite uh, get there. And so uh, hydrogen is, is there to step in. And it's kind of the moment that the, the local sector has been waiting uh, uh, a number of decades for. And when we talk about hydrogen, another thing mm-hmm. that I saw, I think it was maybe this week or last week, um, the fact that we're gonna, we might or we could soon be seeing hydrogen trucks. Right. right. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's not right. something that a lot of people really thought would, you know, there's been a lot of hydrogen, you know, well, we can see hydrogen, this hydrogen, but a truck, you know, a large truck, that's something. Mm-hmm. That's right. So um, about uh, last week, there was an announcement that a, a Vancouver area startup, Hydra Energy, was, uh, was getting some funding to help convert some uh, very large logging trucks. Uh, which currently use diesel, of course, and uh, they were going to convert them so that about half of what they burned was hydrogen, clean hydrogen sourced uh, with uh, renewable electricity uh, alongside the, the diesel engine. And, you know, that's not all the way there. It's not 100% emissions reduction, but uh, if someone's relying on their vehicle for their job, you know, it's a bit of a risk It's a, to say, well, can you switch to batteries? Can you switch to fuel cells? They're not as familiar with this. Uh, and so this is a, a tremendous opportunity in the short term to significantly reduce emissions from heavier trucks, from the, the very heavy-duty vehicles that we have on the roads. And again, it's like every little bit counts. It's, a, it's not a silver bullet, but it's like a silver buckshot. There's like all sorts of uh, uh, different individual uh, steps that uh, we can take to uh, help reduce our emissions while creating jobs and export opportunities for companies like them. So when, you know, the hydrogen um, plant coming up, we could see hydrogen powering 
big trucks, buses, trains, even planes? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. So um, right now, uh, companies from British Columbia, uh, the fuel cell makers in British Columbia, power about 4,500 buses and trucks around the world, mainly in China. China has uh, very many reasons for wanting to uh, try and uh, clean its, uh, its air and develop its industry. Uh, so we already do have those uh, deployed uh, around the world. There, there is right now CP, uh, the, the Canadian Pacific Railway. Uh, they're beginning a project to uh, to replace one of their diesel um, uh, locomotives, uh, which runs, I think, Lethbridge to, to Calgary, uh, with uh, with a fuel cell powered, a hydrogen fuel cell powered locomotive. Uh, there is also a, a passenger train, kind of a via rail kind of a thing. Uh, in Europe, which uh, has run since 2018, again replacing uh, diesel uh, diesel uh, train with uh, with hydrogen, and uh, there are uh, some startups who have successfully flown smaller planes. Uh, one of them named Zero Avia. They they signed a deal with British Airways to expand their uh, their uh, technology into like from 20 seaters to 50 50 to 150 seat uh, airplanes. So. That'll take some time. You know, we want to make sure everything's perfectly safe uh, in uh, in air flights. But um, but that will happen as well. Matthew Klippenstein is with us this afternoon. Matthew is the regional manager for Western Canada for the Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. And Matthew, before we went on that break, mm-hmm. we were talking about hydrogen in the ground, jobs creation and how mm-hmm. both link, right? Let, let's move yeah. to what kind of jobs specifically, or, you know, let's speak, you know, idealistically, are we looking at here in terms of creation? Sure. Well, um, the kinds of jobs that we can get uh, with, uh, with the scale-up of hydrogen, one of the things that we can do is we can export hydrogen as, as a clean uh, energy exporter, as opposed to exporting oil, natural gas, and coal, as we do currently. So many of those roles, many of those jobs will be very similar. You're exporting uh, one thing as opposed to exporting the other. Uh, there's also a lot of processing, engineering uh, to be done and uh, a lot of money to be made, really, to be efficient at uh, pulling the hydrogen out of the uh, fossil fuel while leaving the CO2, the carbon dioxide, in the ground. So many of the same skill sets, it's just uh, shifting from one type of, uh, of product to another. Okay, Matthew, so let's quickly touch on this one in the time that we have left. It's um, what Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, just put out in terms of creating mm-hmm. more EV charging centers in the, mm-hmm. in, the, in the city, right? And, sure. you know, people who drive, you know, um, electric vehicles and having to find convenient parks and places to charge your vehicle – this, you know, is approved requirement to expand access to EV charging, saying, mm-hmm. and I'm reading their, their press release today, that so that more residents and fleet managers can transition easily to electric vehicles. Some people sure. still find this, uh, like, they see this as something that will not happen in a very long time, right? So let's talk mm-hmm. about this plan. How does this yeah. plan change a thinking pattern? How does this plan make someone who is, you know, we're just getting out of the pandemic and is able to get a new job, wants to get a car, think about getting an electric vehicle? Sure, yes. Yeah. So this is a wonderful uh, policy that the, the city of Vancouver has announced. Uh, before I joined this hydrogen association, I helped work on electric car infrastructure in exactly these types of buildings. 
with uh, with a nonprofit at the plug in BC. And uh, one, as you mentioned, one of the things that people worry about uh, to get an electric car is what if I can't charge at home? The majority, 60% of households in Metro Vancouver live in residential buildings, apartments, townhouses, uh, where it's not as easy uh, to charge as if you have your own garage. So by making it possible to, making it easy, uh, making it future-proof for these new buildings, uh, to have a, a charging station access where the, the building owner can install a charging station as soon as someone uh, uh, requests it, uh, that will make it uh, easier, more comfortable for more people uh, to choose uh, electric vehicles, which is great. Uh, we, had an ele- we, we have an electric vehicle. We've had one for eight years. And for the first few years, we couldn't charge at home. It was exactly because of these uh, charging stations out in the public that uh, we were able to uh, drive uh, um, with electricity as opposed to gasoline. Thanks for sharing your afternoon with me. My name is Jimmy Ogunshola, filling in for Jill Bennett this um, Tuesday afternoon. And um, in case you've just tuned in, you've just joined us, well, there's still a lot for you to hear and be part of on the show this afternoon. More reaction to the appointment of Mary Simon as the incoming Governor General of Canada, where we will be joined by Her Honour, the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, um, very soon. And we'll also be talking about the latest about um, the various wildfires burning in British Columbia. But for now, let's focus on something that the World Health Organization said earlier today. It's about a new COVID variant. And this variant is called LAMP. And we will be joined by the Assistant Professor of Canada um, and Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, University of Manitoba, Dr. Jason Kendrichuk. is a household name now. Hello, Dr. Kendrichuk. Thanks for joining us. It's good to finally talk to you, Jimmy. Yeah. So um, let's just take it from here. When I saw this news earlier today, I heard the World Health Organization talk about it. It did strike something in me, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, another variant. We seem to be having a lot of mutation with the COVID-19 variant. Let's talk about this one. What do we know about this new variant called Lambda? Yeah, it's a great question. We we don't know a lot, and and, and I say that in the sense of, you know, that actually might be a good thing um, because we haven't seen a lot of rampant spread uh, outside of, of South America. Certainly it's moving. We've seen it, I think, in 29 countries now. Um, it has a couple of uh, mutations that would suggest that there may be some concerns in regards to uh, immune evasion and certainly enhanced transmissibility, but the epidemiology isn't there yet. So where we are is that it's, it's a variant of interest. We're watching it. We don't quite know what this means yet. And I think certainly what, what people need to remember is that when we see mutations, um, they can on, often give us a flag, kind of like you know a check engine light, that there's something maybe going on. But we don't necessarily know that there's that there's actually a fire there. And, and that's really where we have to start to kind of piece all the, the information together and see whether or not there is truly uh, enough to, to constitute it being a variant of concern. Okay, so when we call it, did you say a variant of concern, a variant of interest, right? Both are interchangeable. Yes. Right. And we've heard about, we've heard that of the Delta variant as well, you know, like a variant of concern. But I don't want us to just kind of, you know, just brush over that and say, when we say variant of concern, for a variant to be flagged as a variant of concern, what does that mean in itself? 
Yeah, it's very specific, right? So when we think about variants, variants are occurring all the time because mutations are occurring all the time. But very often, these don't mean anything. that They don't change the behavior of the virus. When we start to see that maybe there's an increase in the proportion of cases that are showing up with a particular variant, now it gets flagged as a variant of interest. So it looks like there might be something there, but we don't know. Variant of concern now suggests that you have some, some potential problems. So enhanced transmissibility, inability of diagnostics to pick up uh, the, the, the particular variant, um, you know, loss of uh, or at least you know, some decrease in, in vaccine effectiveness and uh, decrease in, in therapeutic effectiveness. So there's, there's a, basically a risk categorization to how we look at all these. And certainly it's confusing for people. Um, but when we're at a various, uh, variant of interest stage, we're still trying to, to see whether or not there's correlation uh, that, that, that's linked to the causation. So are we seeing specific activities that are related to the increased proportion of cases in a region that, that we're identifying? So this has been seen in about 29 to 31 countries across the world. And is it, are we looking at it being more transmissible as well, like the, D, like the Delta variant? Well, this is such a good question, right? And, and we don't know. So the UK data, they've certainly picked up uh, some cases there. We haven't seen drastic uh, increases in transmission. I mean, it's, it's competing against the Delta variant. So we, we have to think about this in terms of fitness. The Delta variant is more fit than the last circulating strain. So that's been supplanted. So Delta is now kind of the, you know, the, the apex predator. Um, now, you know, we have to wait and see if Lambda tries to replace Delta. If that happens, then it tells us that there's something going on. If it doesn't, it tells us that, okay, it, it doesn't have enough kind of, you know, oomph to it to, to replace it. And the data, unfortunately, from Peru it is still, it doesn't give us everything we need to know about enhanced transmission. So there might be a spark there, but I, I don't think we have enough information to, to, to say that that's concrete yet. Okay, so I'm guessing that the question on the lips of many people right now will be, well, we're all getting vaccinated right now. So is this variant going to be resistant to vaccines or is the vaccines going to be effective on this new variant? Well, again, there's there's a couple of ways to to think about this. First of all, every variant that's been thrown at the vaccine, certainly the mRNA vaccines, the vaccines have held up very well against those. So we might have seen some, some decrease, certainly in, in Israel very recently on symptomatic disease um, for, for Delta. But to be fair, that, that's not severe disease. So the vaccines are holding up. The likelihood is for Lambda, we're going to see the same thing. There's been some, some studies looking at neutralizing antibodies from patients that were vaccinated. It looks like their, their antibodies are still able to recognize the virus. So I think we're personally, we're in good shape in places like North America. The places that I'm very concerned about are the areas of the world where we're seeing like 1% coverage of, of, um, of vaccination. So certainly the majority of the resource-limited settings in the world, they are, are going to continue to have to deal with this in the absence of vaccination programs, and, and we have to do better at that. Okay, Dr. K- Jason Kendrichop with us this afternoon discussing the new variant um, that we've been warned about called the LAM. Lambda, right? Lambda. Yes, Lambda Lambda variant, right? And um, we're talking, and you actually just jumped into my next question, which was going to be, should Canadians be concerned? And you said, you know, people in North America shouldn't be concerned. So Dr. Jason Kinderchuk today is saying, what we know so far, we shouldn't be concerned about this yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm cautious, but I always am because I'm an emerging virus guy. I think we, we, we want to see how this plays out, right? So the, the biggest thing is 
keep Canadians need to keep doing what they're doing, which is getting vaccinated. We're getting control of this. We, we just can't stop and, and believe that, that we're already past COVID yet. After the record-breaking temperatures that we experience here in the province, the wildfire season has started. So very soon we'll be telling you about the latest on that in the province. That's talking about the over 200 active wildfires burning right here in BC. Also, we will be telling you one or two ways that you could protect yourself in terms of the air pollution that most oftentimes comes up after the fire season. But in the meantime, let's go back to Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Um, he's the Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease, University of Manitoba. Dr. Kinderchuk, before the break, we were talking about the new variant and, you know, very little, it's, we know very little about it at this moment. Now, let's talk about something that we kind of know a little more about and how it's helping to keep people out of hospitals and helping to um, cut down rate of um, death in terms of COVID-19, which is vaccines, right? So with vaccination, there is a study out of Israel that is suggesting that Pfizer is less effective against the Delta variant. Yes, and I think we have to look at this from from a couple of perspectives, right? So Certainly, there, there had already been some data coming out of the UK looking at both Pfizer and AstraZeneca against Delta and actually showed that there was a really good protection that, uh, that, that was afforded against any symptomatic disease. So the Israel situation is a little bit different. We've got to accept that there's going to be some regional differences uh, in different areas of the world for, for a number of different reasons and different variables. Um, but one of the things we really have to keep perspective about is Listen, I, we, can, we can look at a potential drop in overall effectiveness as long as it's not an increase in hospitalization. So if we see only an increase in mild disease symptoms, even with a variant of concern that, that may be able to, to partially escape immunity, if we're still able to keep hospitalization down and people are only getting mild disease, that's still actually a very good vaccine uh, and certainly put this in line with with being able to continue to get broad dissemination of vaccination and reduce transmission rates is it perfect no but it's still doing the job that it needs to and i think that's really what, what we have to appreciate is that the vaccines are keeping people out of the hospital and certainly keeping fatal infections uh you know at, at a minimum so with vaccines we can talk from today till tomorrow because there are a lot of questions that people have you know we talk about the mixing and matching of vaccines and you know how effective that is oh the mrna is better than astrazeneca and what have you but one thing is still important which is that we need to vaccinate a lot of people so that we can attain some level of immunity, right? So that we don't have, um, you know, people who are eligible who want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated as soon as possible. And in various provinces, people and authorities and governments have been trying different strategies to get people to get vaccinated. We know about the vaccine lottery, you know, which some people say is it hasn't worked so well. But what are some ways? I would say here in British Columbia, in Surrey, there was this um, pop-up vaccine clinic. And I was impressed by the number of people who showed up at the clinic to get vaccinated between 24 hours, right? It did run for 24 hours. They had a lot of entertainment and things like that. But for me, I think the most important thing was 
getting that pop-up clinic where people didn't have to really wait for so long to get an appointment. So let's talk about some creative ways to kind of make vaccination more accessible to people. Yeah, I mean, look, accessibility is really key, right? And, and one of the things we've seen even here in Manitoba is that as accessibility has increased, if you take vaccines out to communities, you're going to get less hesitance, I think, in people that have to travel and are made to feel as if they are giving up something to have to go and get those vaccines. And we should be doing that. We should be making it equitable across all socioeconomic demographics and all of our populations. And I think that's really key is figuring out how do we do that? And then those people that are reluctant to get vaccinated, what are the longstanding issues that we have to start to address that may not be cleared up by the end of COVID, but over the next you know, decades, we have to figure out what is that, that roadblock um, for, for those communities. And, and certainly we, we have to be very appreciative that it, it's an important time to do that. So in a few minutes before we wrap this up, let me ask you, you, you are on the platform here and What's that message you mentioned? Some people who are reluctant to get, you know, go out there. You know, it could be because of your work. It could be something else, right? But then let's yeah. talk about what's your message. What would you say to Canadians who want to get vaccinated, who are still who haven't gotten to it yet? What's the message that you'll share with them? And you know, some of them have this hesitancy about. Oh, they say AstraZeneca, mRNA, this has not been really tested. I don't want to be a guinea pig. And we have this in various communities and research and study shows that maybe more within minority communities and misinformation playing a huge role in it. What's your message to them? The message is, is that we are all appreciative of trust and we have to build this trust. And the greatest way we can build trust is by making healthcare accessible for, for all populations, and that includes the populations that, that have some concerns about vaccination. We want to see vaccines get disseminated in these communities. We want to ensure that it's done safely, and we want to ensure that there's oversight so that if there are any irregularities, that, that those are monitored. And ultimately, the reason we want to do it is that the populations that, that have often been, uh, you know, been made, you know, had vaccines that are least accessible for them, have often been the ones that have been disproportionately affected by these diseases. And we want to end that suffering. And, and this is our, probably our greatest chance to be able to do that, at least for COVID, and then moving into different diseases in the future. So last, last question now. Is there a possibility of us having to get a booster shot or needing a third shot of COVID vaccine? Yeah, there's always a possibility, certainly for people that are immunocompromised, this has been discussed. But one of the things we also need to appreciate is that and there's a large segment of the world that has not seen their first immunizations yet. So I think before we go down the line of talking about third immunizations for the bulk of our population, we've got to think about getting uh, vaccines out to the, the global population and to try and get uh, COVID under control. Infectious diseases expert from University of Manitoba, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Absolute pleasure, Jimmy.